0: Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Today, we start a new play. Last week, we finished Shakespeare's History Tetralogy, which began with Richard II, moved through Henry the Fourth, parts one and two, and ended with Henry V. Today, we began studying a play that he wrote pretty much right after he finished that tetralogy, Twelfth Night, whose subtitle is Or What You Will, a play that is generally dated around 1600 to 1601. In other words, right somehow or other alongside of Hamlet. Right before, right after, they're not totally sure but the conjunction is significant because there are themes and patterns that occur between the two plays, especially the theme of madness. And there is a link backwards because of the theme of what is sometimes called carnival in the play of festivity and figures who embody that festivity, we can't help but think back to the enormous popularity of the figure of Falstaff, not only in the tetralogy itself, but in another comedy, The Merry Wives of Windsor, in which Falstaff also appears. Twelfth Night is a remarkably rich and complex play, and part of the challenge, though also part of the stimulation of the experience will be trying to keep track of the multiple thematic patterns. It is in some ways the climax of all of Shakespeare's earlier comedies. In Shakespeare's career, he first made himself well known through largely two genres, exactly the history play and his earlier comedies. With Hamlet, really with Julius Caesar right before Hamlet, but definitely with Hamlet. He embarked on the period of the so-called Great Tragedies and some other tragedies as well. And the history plays disappeared entirely except for the very late Henry VIII. And comedy attenuated, we might say. He wrote far fewer comedies, and those he wrote fall into the category of what are called the problem comedies or problem plays, the greatest of which is Measure for Measure. They are remarkable plays but they are also remarkably different from the earlier comedies, a group of which are called the festive comedies. One of the Great books about Shakespearean comedy was a book by a Shakespearean critic named C. L. Barber, Shakespeare's Festive Comedies. And Twelfth Night is the last of the festive comedies, and in a way, a kind of culmination and climax, drawing a lot of their images, patterns, and themes together. And because of this rich complexity, I want to today establish a little bit of context. Some of it will be repeated from some things I said when we studied the earlier comedies, Midsummer Night's Dream and Much Ado About Nothing, but now in an expanded context, a kind of crescendo. In the Elizabethan period, comedy had inherited what was called the Patterns of New Comedy, which was a Roman tradition as the Elizabethans knew it, going back to the early Roman dramatists Plautus and Terence. They had not invented New Comedy, they had inherited it from some largely lost sources in Greece, but it was called New Comedy to differentiate it from the old comedy of Aristophanes, much earlier back in the time of people like Plato. The New Comedy tradition inherited by the Romans and picked up as a model by the Elizabethans. And when we studied Midsummer Night's Dream, I gave a quick little sketch of the type of comedy that especially in its more commercialized forms, was really rather a formula or kind of recipe that was used with variation. It was, and if you know Midsummer Night's Dream or remember the podcast, this will be familiar. It's a very common plot and it's certainly not unknown to this day. It is the story of young love trying to get together but temporarily thwarted both by general social forces, but those forces are often embodied in a particular blocking figure, sometimes called the Senex or old man, usually a father who either is possessive about his daughter or if you go back to some of the less restrained Roman new comedies, actually a rival to his own son for the favors of some girl. And young love wants to get together but to quote Midsummer Night's Dream, the, path of, the course of true love never did run smooth. There is opposition. And the young lovers are helped by some ally figure which in Roman comedy was often a tricky slave figure. In Midsummer Night's Dream it turns out to be Puck, the fairy figure. And given various helps. And finally, through a plot twist or series of plot twists that are either plausible or not, it doesn't matter. We get up get a happy ending. Usually a happy ending, if it's Shakespeare on three levels: individual, romantic, and social. there is a happy ending, a renewal. Of everything, and everybody gets married and they live happily ever after, etc. Shakespeare, in his use of this pattern, and he uses it more sometimes than in others, will almost always add yet something else. He will add a subplot that runs contrapuntally parallel to the main plot of the lovers and it will be low-comedy featuring low-life characters. There will be thematic parallels. It's as if the same thing were played in a different key. And we're going to see this in Twelfth Night also with the festive characters, shall we say, like Toby Belch. But nevertheless, this is the simple formula and it can be used either simply and commercially or more subtly, in which case it develops into the form, often called the comedy of manners, both on the stage and later in the history of the novel. New comedy patterns are a remarkably consistent set of patterns. On the stage in Shakespeare's time, this was the form of Ben Jonson, in what he called his comedy of humors. It is the form of Moliere. And when the novel developed, novelists like Fielding and Dickens are still using patterns that go back to the patterns of new comedy. Shakespeare also employs them. And the comedy of manners patterns are more evident in certain plays than others. They're very evident, for example, in Much Ado About Nothing. These are social dramas, dramas of social manners. There is a lot of wit and satire. An earlier, cruder version would be Taming of the Shrew. Measure for Measure, the great problem comedy, is also in the tradition of comedy of manners. and. They are relatively ironic and satiric plays with a minimum of what appears in other Shakespeare plays that is quite different and in fact comes from a quite different tradition than the comedy of manners or new comedy. It goes back to an earlier period and some of Shakespeare's sources reinforce this, especially the Italian novellas that he liked to draw from for various plays, goes back to the tradition of the genre of romance, the tale of wonders and marvels. Shakespeare's plays differ from the comedies of his contemporaries largely because there is usually an element of wonder and marvel in the plays and it is often not just mood or marginalized imagery but it is actually essential to the twist that brings about the happy ending we'll have to see how that works in action but i would like to set up as many things ahead of time as i say to give us a handle on this rich and complex text. The wonder and marvel element is often projected in the play and the plot as an actual physical place and often in a remarkable number of the comedies it is a wood or wilderness. The great Essay on comedy by Northrop Frye called The Argument of Comedy, clear back in 1948, laid this out, identifying a set of comedies that he called the comedies of the green world in Shakespeare. And Midsummer Night's Dream is probably the most obvious example of that. The action begins in the court. It begins in a civilized or social setting but moves out into a wood or green place that is a place of mystery, of magic, of fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream, where strange things happen, strange transformations happen, a realm that resembles the realm of dream more than it does the world of waking. And then it comes back again, typically, with... The world and the characters transformed at the end of the play. And, as I say, a rather remarkable number of Shakespeare's comedies do that. Early in his career, two gentlemen of Verona, two friends, go out in the woods and play at being Robin Hood-like characters. Midsummer Night's Dream, one of the greatest of the festive comedies, As You Like It moves out into the forest of Arden. And two of the four late romances are doing the same thing, Uh, including uh, the greatest uh, Green World romance, perhaps The Winter's Tale, but also Cymbeline, in which the wood is the wilds of Wales, the country of Wales. Even Merry Wives of Windsor with Falstaff takes place with action involving Windsor Forest. So the comedy of the green world out into the green realm of mystery and back again. The same thing, however, the image of some mysterious otherness that transforms the action can take place in other Shakespeare plays that form a separate category less literal this time but they are called the sea comedies sea and tempest associated with the sea and twelfth night is one of the great sea and tempest comedies here the action obviously it cannot take place in the water or underwater but The water forms a pervasive pattern of imagery of storm, the coming of chaos, of inundation, and of shipwreck. In one of his works, Fry makes the quip that the common mode of travel in romance is by shipwreck. And that is exactly true in Twelfth Night. The first time we see our heroine Viola, she is... Coming out of the water, the sole survivor, as she thinks, although she turns out to be wrong about that, sole survivor, she thinks, of a shipwreck in a strange place. Where am I? Something that comes out of the sea and transforms the action. And In varying ways, this runs through the entire career of Shakespeare, literally from beginning to end, because his first play, his first comedy, probably was the Comedy of Errors. And this takes place in the Comedy of Errors, which resembles Twelfth Night in the use of identical twins that get confused with each other. It ends his career with the last play completely by his own hand, The Tempest. And another of the romances, Pericles, also travels by shipwreck, shall we say. And in a certain way, The Merchant of Venice, which moves across the water to the enchanted land of Portia and the folktale device of a suitor having to choose among 3 metals metal-shaped caskets the moving out into a realm of mystery. That realm, in my book, Productions of Time, I borrow a term for this because it also is an occurrence in the whole history of the genre of romance. I call it the Otherworld with a capital O. I'm not the only one to use that term. And in fact, I borrowed it from Celtic scholarship where it refers to the realm of fairy in Irish and Celtic mythology, but it is this otherness into which the action moves, and it's a realm of transformation, sometimes literal, sometimes more figurative. And Twelfth Night is one of the great sea comedies. There is a group of the earlier comedies, and Twelfth Night is the culminating one called the festive comedies, and I've already mentioned the name of C.L. Barber, his landmark book Shakespeare's festive comedy, and that takes us back to the title of Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night is a festive comedy in a very literal sense in naming the festivity Twelfth Night is, of course, the 12 days of Christmas. Twelfth night is the twelfth of those 12 days. And in fact, it was January the 6th, which traditionally was a day of revelry, of carnival, of all sorts of goings-on. In the United States, unfortunately, that will now be forever associated with a rather different type of revelry the insurrection of january the sixth with the uncanniness of history landing right on that date with the most ironic implications that we will probably go into later but before that traditionally In Christian terms, it's the Feast of the Epiphany, the wise men having the Christ child revealed to them. In Orthodox tradition, it is the New Year, and that may be relevant too. But in Shakespeare's England, it was a time for fun and games. It would be what's left of the tradition in North America, in the United States, is probably the vestigial festivities of New Year's. Christmas has been rather domesticated and it's a family holiday, but the letting loose holiday and the celebration of the death of the old and the ringing in of the new was always New Year's, although it's a sad come down from the festivities of yesterday. This type of festivity has been intensely studied by not just social scientists but by literary critics, particularly the Russian critic Bakhtin, who had a whole theory of what he called carnival, all of the festivities and a variants of what he called carnival, and that term has caught on. Carnival festivities, holidays, are characterized by a temporarily setting aside of, or at least loosening, of the social rules of proper law and order, and letting, in a qualified, usually, and definitely temporary way, letting all hell break loose in a way that they hoped was harmless. The purpose of this was not liberal. It was conservative. It was a way of conserving the usually hierarchical and authoritarian social order. You have to, if you repress the common people, the lower levels of society, much of the year, it is prudent to give them a few days where they can blow off steam. And to do that, you set aside the rules and you allow certain forms of license And in Shakespeare's time, they had inherited from the Middle Ages, a whole rich folklore roster of rituals and customs that embodied this in certain comic symbolism with a party-like atmosphere. Things like the Feast of Fools and the election especially of a lord of misrule. Setting aside the normal figures of law and order, they would give over the hands of society, the social reins to a figure who was elected somehow as a lord of misrule. Falstaff bears every resemblance to some of the early folklore figures of the lord of misrule. Behind the English customs stands the older Roman custom, of Saturnalia and what that holiday meant was a return Saturnalia meant a return temporarily to the first golden age the age of Saturn in which because it was a golden age there were no laws no laws were necessary because it was perfect so we have this carnival atmosphere and these carnival customs, which are embodied in the first part of the title of Twelfth Night. The second part, or what you will, seems at first to be a sort of a throwaway, like some of the seemingly throwaway titles of the other comedies, meaning, oh, anything you want, we're just here to entertain you as you like it. All's well that ends well. You know, whatever you want, whatever you will. There are actually several other puns that we will come at later lodged in the word will, including, to whet your appetite, Shakespeare's own name, will, which he puns upon not only here probably, but definitely in the sonnets more later But I do want to get on to the play itself. The play, the basic plot, it is not a plot with a large amount of action in it. It's making it a play like Much Ado that is rather hard to talk about because you don't have a plot line beyond a point to be pinning your lecture or podcast upon. But that's okay because... There is so much to think about and do here, and so much to appreciate. But what plot we have begins with the figure of Viola, our heroine and one of a whole line of Shakespearean heroines in the middle comedies, including As You Like It, which has another figure, Rosalind, very comparable to Viola, Women who represent Shakespeare's attempt to model a strong woman, rather than the type of women dominated by the patriarchy, women like hero in Much Ado About Nothing, who is contrasted with the figure of Beatrice, whom no man is going to dominate, not even Benedict. They will have a marriage of equals, but he will be no patriarchal dominator of Beatrice and neither will anyone else. And then we have Rosalind in As You Like It and we have Viola here, women who are smarter than, stronger than anyone else in the play, but certainly stronger than the males that surround them. Makes for a problem, which admirable women in our time are familiar with because it hasn't gone away, that when you're that admirable and independent and intelligent and energetic, the field of males that can come up to your level is pretty, pretty small and do you have to settle? That's going to be a problem in the play if viola is going to get married she's going to have to do some serious work here on a male figure to have someone that deserves her uh for certain type of us men the rosalinds and Beatrices and violas are the type that we would get a crush on exactly because of their vitality and intelligence but viola survives a shipwreck and one of the few other survivors is a sea captain who befriends her and they have a dialogue and Viola doesn't even know where she is where are we and he says we're in the country of Illyria and the David Bevington edition of Shakespeare's plays that I have always used has a footnote at that point identifying it as sort of the intersection of delirium and illusion. That's about right. That's just about perfect. It's not a real country, in other words. Shakespeare didn't do well with real geography anyway. He was the guy who gave Bohemia a seacoast in Winter's Tale. So just as well that he invents a place that is a kind of Neil Gaiman realm of delirium and illusion, It is a place where delirium and illusion will be let loose, and they will be let loose by the catalyst of two people who come out of the sea. We don't meet the other one yet, but Viola has an identical twin brother named Sebastian, and he too has survived, though he lands on shore in another place. And it is these two agents from the sea you might say. They don't they have nothing supernatural about them. They do not represent magical forces in any way. And yet, there is something special about them that is transformative. And they land in the midst of a multiply dysfunctional society, a society that is sterile and paralyzed from one end of the social spectrum to the other. And Their very entry in it, especially Viola, is the transformative catalyst. That is roughly the plot. Viola has to survive, and she's a plucky woman. She is cast down, she's mourning her brother to the captain in the scene in which we first meet her, which is actually the second scene of Act One. She asks, what country is this? And the captain says, this is Illyria. And she is mournful. What should I do in Illyria? My brother, he is in Elysium. In other words, heaven. But she immediately adds, perchance he is not drowned. And the captain does point out, it is perchance that you yourself were saved. Something saved you. Maybe it saved him too. And it was good to keep that hope because that will turn out to be true, though not for a good while yet. Meanwhile, she's alone and a woman alone in a strange country. Therefore, she comes up with a plan almost immediately. She's hardly dried out from the sea when she's already figuring out an answer to the problem of survival. She learns from the captain that close by here is a duke named Orsino, who is seeking the love of a woman named the fair Olivia, and that Olivia is the daughter of a count who died, left her in the protection of her brother, and then the brother died. So she has been abjuring not only the company of men, but pretty much all company whatsoever, and claims that she's going to do this for at least seven years. Okay. Well, I'm going to disguise myself. I can't go around as a woman alone. That's just not done. And therefore, Viola disguises herself as a male figure. She can't hide the fact of her high voice, so she is going to Pretend to be, as she says in line 56 of scene 2, a eunuch. In other words, a a boy singer who is high-voiced, who has perhaps not hit puberty yet, or at least his voice has not changed. It may be worth thy pains, for I can sing and speak to him in many sorts of music. So she is going to go to Duke Orsino and present herself as okay I am a uh, boyish figure but I represent music and her name the name viola this is such a rich play linguistically her name suggests the musical instrument of the viol in other words the stringed instrument and as we'll see when we are introduced to the Duke. The very first reference to the play is to music. Music runs all through the play. Her name suggests music, and it also suggests the purple flower of death and rebirth that we also saw in Midsummer Night's Dream, the Violet. It also, just to show you the richness of interreflecting verbal patterns, Viola Olivia. The two women's names seem to interreflect each other and this is a play about, as we shall see, the confusion, though the rich confusion, of identity. One of the fascinations of this play for our time is going to be here. As Viola becomes a male, she's going to call herself Cesario and pretend to be a male but a very non-masculine type of male is the theme of gender identity and what we would call gender fluid or non-binary or whatever the proper term would be for the fact that gender categories are going to be confounded here with the strong hint that they are confounded because human nature is not nearly as grounded in and imprisoned by them as human nature often likes to pretend. Shakespeare himself may well have been, again, the words fail us, but there is quite a strong possibility embodied in some of the sonnets, as we'll see later, that he himself had relationships with a male or males, as well as, of course, having a wife and a family, and earlier centuries did not want to hear this. Coleridge went ballistic whenever the subject of the sonnets was brought up that the first entire set of sonnets is about a beautiful youth and the love of a male poet for a beautiful youth who is nevertheless male. but. Gender gender ambiguity and gender identity are a major part of the theme of this play. The transformation in the play towards the happy ending takes place through the confusion of gender categories, but the fruitful confusion and ultimately the transformation of those categories and therefore of the society that has been trying to live them out in some very unproductive ways as we will see. The supposedly heterosexual or straight Orsino and Olivia are living out heterosexual romantic fantasies on his part, anti-romantic fantasies on her part, shutting herself up as if she were a nun and neither is doing themselves any good neither of them for that matter are doing their societies any good because they're neglecting to run them properly and in the case of olivia's household she has given over governing to the main blocking character of the play the figure of malvolio whose name means ill will so we have the setup here for an interesting action as Viola makes her way to the Court of Orsino. And the actual first scene is a famous speech by Orsino himself. And we will take up from that point and get into the actual action of this very rich play next time.